0: Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook but sitting next to Notion it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to Notion.com slash squared, that's all lowercase letters, Notion.com slash squared lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action and when you use the link you're supporting intelligence squared Two. That's notion.com slash squared.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi,
2: it's Farah from the Intelligence Squared team here. I'm really excited to be speaking to you guys on a Tuesday instead of our usual Friday slot. We'll be bringing you some bonus episodes for the next few weeks. They're sampled from our new podcast strand called How I Found My Voice, presented by the BBC journalist, Samira Ahmed. If you're interested in listening to more episodes from this series, just look up How I Found My Voice in your podcast app. And if you enjoy listening,
1: please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, we'll be bringing you our usual episodes every Friday.
3: If I remember correctly, I said... I want to be a poet. And he turned around and he said something like... A poet? Have you ever seen a poet skin a rabbit? (laughs) It's hard for people to understand that I could get arrested on a Friday, kept in a police station, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, beaten, every day, till about Wednesday. Beaten most of the time with a mattress and bedding around me, so I don't bruise that much. This is Divide and Rule, Let's Unite. I used to have a poem that used to go, if you get uptight and you want to fight, fight them, not me. If you check out the scene and things don't right, see them, not me. I came, I saw, I live here, and I have my tribulation to be here. If you're getting uptight and you really want to fight, fight them, not me.
2: Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed. This podcast is all about getting behind the celebrity to understand how they came to find their voice, from getting a reply to your letter from Bob Marley to going to the all-night sound system music parties in inner city Birmingham. Let us know what you think by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and tweeting with the Intelligence Squared hashtag IQ2. It's hard now in Britain, I think, to remember a time when Benjamin Zephaniah wasn't one of the nation's most famous and loved poets. His poems regularly appear at the top of lists of the nation's favourites. His work is taught on the English literature curriculum in British schools – Drawing on the fusion of West Indian music and dub-style improvisation in the multicultural city of Birmingham in the West Midlands, he pioneered live performance poetry in the mainstream, appearing on the new Channel 4 on British TV when it launched in 1982. But the Britain he grew up in in the 1960s was deeply hostile to people of colour, and his own youth was marked by violence, from the police and within his own family – He spent some years involved in crime. But from an early age, Benjamin Zephaniah wanted to be one thing, a poet. Now he is a multi-award winning poet, but also a playwright, a novelist, musician and political activist, as likely to appear on political debate shows such as the BBC's Question Time as at literary festivals. He's currently Professor of Poetry and Creative Writing at Brunel University in London, which is where I've come to meet him. He describes himself on his website as poet, writer, lyricist, musician and naughty boy. Welcome, Benjamin, or rather, thank you for welcoming me to your university.
3: That's such a thank long you. introduction. And the thing fit? is, with it right, I really want to interrupt when she says celebrity. I am not a celebrity, get me out of here. I know, <laughs> I know. I know
2: you do want to say that.
3: I've turned that down twice.
2: I bet you have. You're a smart man. I want to start where you grew up, which is Birmingham, with six siblings, with your Jamaican mother and your father from was it Barbados? Barbados, yeah. Yes. What was that like? That house.
3: I remember it as a lot of fun, actually, most of the time, until it got violent. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what it would like to be like a lone child because there was so much noise going on. There was always somebody crying, somebody complaining, somebody hungry, somebody feeling sick all the time, it was nice. So I really liked it. We were really poor. But I didn't feel poor. And my neighbours were poor. <laughs> and so there weren't no rich people to admire. There wasn't nobody to be jealous or envious of.
2: And your mother was a nurse and your father worked for the post office. That's right, yeah. Yeah.
3: And my father he started as a sweeper or a cleaner in the post office and worked his way up. And he never had another job. That was the only job. And he was so proud that he he went through that and he rose up with hard work and all that stuff, and proud that he never had a day off work sick. But I think his downfall was that he was a, a very macho man and obsessed with being in control. Obsessed with being in control of the family and being in control of my mother.
2: As you brought it up, I wonder if we should talk about it now. Which is the fact that you did you did see him be violent, and yes. he was violent. I mean, you know, there was this punishment aspect to the way children. Um, from Caribbean backgrounds sometimes were raised. Well, yes. Which by modern standards seems bizarre. Can you talk us through what what you would describe as the, the violence in the home and, and how it affected you?
3: Well, first of all, you're right. I mean, Caribbean kids, certainly Jamaican ones, that are all the families that I knew, and from Barbados as well, were regularly getting beatings. And we joke about them now because the, I mean, some of the aspects of them are really funny. I mean, like, for example your dad or sometimes your mum would actually get you to get the belt. So, you know, you'd do this really slow walk up to the bedroom to get the belt or the stick or whatever it was, to give it to the adult so that he could beat you. There was this kind of um, rhythm to the way you'd get beaten. So it would be, you know, I told you before, no more climbing up that tree. I told you before, don't eat the apples. I told you before, <laughs> yeah. so the kind of poetry and rhythm to it all, it sounds crazy and we laugh about it as adults, but, um, and don't get me wrong, I'm completely against it, I, uh, I actually campaign against kind of uh, parents beating their children, anyway, but the other side of that violence um, was how my father got violent towards my mother, and um, it, the first time I realised it was happening was when I was living um, in a house in a place called Hockley in Birmingham. And for some reason, I woke up in the middle of the night, which was really unusual for me, and I came downstairs. I think I actually went to look for my mum and dad in bed, and they weren't there, and I found that was really unusual. So I went downstairs, and my mother was crying, and my father was standing above her, and my mother was sitting down under on the settee. And I'd never seen my mother cry either. So I said, Mum, why are you crying? It sounds crazy now, because I thought only kids cry. <laughs> Right. So I look at my mother and I don't say, why would you want to cry? And my mother said, my father just beat me with that. And she pointed to a frying pan on the floor. And then I realized and my father had this crazed look in his eye and I realized something was wrong. And he just said, go back to bed. And I went back to bed. And then I started to notice things from that night onward. I started to notice things and I just couldn't make sense of it. And the thing is, every time my father went to beat my mother, all the other kids ran away. But I ran to my mother. I would either would cling to my mother or try and fight my dad, which, you know, I could never do. But I'd try and fight him off. And then one day, my mother ran out the house. And I just thought, if I stay, because he used to fight me and beat me as well, he's going to beat me. And I ain't got my mother to protect me. So I just ran with my mother, which is why... I kind of grew up with my mother and the rest of the kids grew up with my father.
2: That's remarkable. Thank you for for talking so honestly about that. You obviously have had a lifelong close bond with your mother, partly because, you know, you left home Mm. with her. But you've said the story of my poetry can be traced back to my mother. Why was she so important to you in finding your voice?
3: Well, she would never call herself a poet. My mother's 84 now, and I don't really think she's found her voice. She had a lot of poetry in her, and that's because the part of Jamaica where she comes from, um, there's a very strong oral tradition there. Recipes are remembered by Rhyme. I don't know if you've ever heard of a nancy stories, mm. um, this crafty spider. That's in, yeah, these are kind of origin stories, aren't yes,
2: they? Yes, yes, yes. Can you tell us a bit about what are Anansi's stories well, Anansi, from Africa originally?
3: It comes from West Africa originally. Anansi is this spider and he's always getting himself in trouble, but he always uses some trickery and some wisdom to get himself out of it. But it's a kind of metaphor for life. And so Nancy story, you know, there's Nancy stories about everything from falling in love to falling down a hole to getting arrested. There's, there's, there's all kinds of Anansi stories. Recently, some of them have been published and some people got really upset by it because they said this is an oral thing, it should keep changing. Once you've written it down, it's set in stone. So you could have an Anansi story from thousands of years ago about Anansi looking at an oracle or a shell or something, which then becomes... A Nancy story, looking at a, com- at a television, yeah. which now would be a computer. And So some people think the idea of writing it down sets it too kind of,
2: much. Yeah, calcifies it. Yeah, so yeah. how was your mother using these stories? And well,
3: to, to if we you know, if we fell down a hole, she would tell us how a Nancy got out of it.
2: Can you give us an example of how your mother used rhyme in these ways?
3: 30 days of September, April, June and November, all the rest are 31, except for February long, which has but 28 days clear and 29 in each leap year. Oh, Sammy, plant piece of corn down a gully, and it be a till it kill poor Sammy. Sammy dead, Sammy dead, Sammy dead. Oh, Sammy dead, Sammy dead, Sammy dead. Oh, that's that. That last one is you know, one that every Jamaican will know. This story about Sammy planting some corn, and he dies. So there's loads of stories like that. Karimiaki got a lipstick market. Not a kwati would sell. Do you know what that means? <laughs> carry me Aki, Aki is a Jamaican oh, yeah. Yeah, fruit. fruit. Yeah. Go to lipstick market, not a kwati, a quarter would sell. Everybody come, feel up, feel up, not a kwati could sell. In other words, all the women are coming and they're feeling it up, yeah. but they're not buying it. You know? So it's the story of a woman struggling, going to the market, trying to sell aki, but people are coming and they're touching, but they're not, not buying. buying. You know? So
2: these are just stories that she would just drop into conversation with you while she was looking after you.
3: Looking day. after us, or like I said, if we did something wrong or we were in trouble, you know, we needed rescuing. So all that came very natural to me. And I just started making up my own rhymes. Now, when I said my mother hasn't really found a voice, is because I think my mother spent most of her life trying to be a good person. Um, when my mother first experienced racism, she, she denies it till this day. We were in a shop, I can't say she first experienced racism, but the first time I saw her experience racism, she denies that it was racism. So we're in a shop. A woman comes in and says, um, Edith, you're not going to serve that darky before you serve me, are you? And the woman jumps in front of my mother and gets served. Uh, and I said, "Mom, did you see that? She says, yeah, she's in a hurry. It's OK, you know. So she would try and see the best in people and try and make excuses for it. Now, the other day, like I said, she's 84 now. Uh, the other day, she was complaining, she saw something on the television, and she was complaining about the Muslims, right? And I said to her, mother, I've heard you complain about Muslims, I've heard you complain about Sikhs, I've heard you complain about, you know, all kinds of people, but I've never heard you complain about white people. And she went, no, I never would. We are in their country and we are guests.
2: How does this make you feel? Because you've grown up passionate about fighting racism um, and your own mother has, I, I think in your own words, shown, I don't know, would you say it's in denial?
3: Yes, it's it's partly denial. It's, and I think it's partly that thing where she's trying to live a dream, which is a fake dream, um, you know, When she was growing up in Jamaica, almost every room in the house had a picture of the Queen, right? My mother could hardly read and write. I mean, she could, but not very well. But, you know, she knew Shakespeare. So when she came to England, she wanted to be more English than the English. She was rather let down that she met English people that couldn't recite Shakespeare. You know, she was really shocked. I remember her and my aunt and her sister, my auntie, saying that, we're going to Mrs. Jones House and... She don't even have a picture of the Queen. How can she do and she's a white woman <laughs> you, know, you know? So she still lives in this kind of dreamland that England is somehow superior to everywhere else, the mother country, and she's a guest here, and we still have to behave for for our masters basically, to put it crudely.
2: I want to ask you about when you first publicly declared you wanted to be a poet. Because it was when you were in the Boys' Brigade. You'd been signed up for the Boys' Brigade (laughs) to be more manly, hadn't you? It's a bit like the Scouts, lots of dressing up in uniforms and and marching. So you're in a parade lineup, and you're all being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And everyone else is saying...
3: Sergeant Major, I want to be in the (laughs) army, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a policeman and all that stuff. And I said, if I remember correctly, I said... I want to be a poet. And he turned around and he said something like, A poet? Have you ever seen a poet skin a rabbit? <laughs> you know, and I just said, No, I don't think I've ever seen a rabbit being skinned. <laughs> and that was it. I think the next day I left the boys' brigade.
2: Oh, so it was It was really interesting that you spoke it out loud. And by this stage, you'd, you'd performed, in a, in a sense, for the first time too. And it'd come about in church, is that right? Yes,
3: yeah. You had the professional preachers. They probably wouldn't like me to call them professional, but you know the the pastors and all them people they were really good. And then every now and again, you get a lay person in our church. Anyway, a lay person would have to come up and do a bit and probably talk about their life and why they found it necessary to pray this week. And it was my mother's turn, and she had nothing prepared, so she got up and she said, "I want to preach for you today, but I don't have anything prepared. So my little boy Benjamin will come up here and." There's something for you, and she just pulled me up. How old were you? Eight or something. Oh, okay, I had a really great memory for the Bible, and I remember the books of the Bible, so I just started to kind of wrap the books of the Bible you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first Samuels, six first and second Kings, first second Chronicles, Isaiah, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Enclusiastic, Songs of Solomon, and I mean, all the way to Revelation. And then it went all the way back. Ooh. And everybody just went, Praise the Lord. <laughs> we have a prophet amongst us. <laughs> and um and that was it. I call that my first public performance.
2: In school, where your kind of ability to kind of make up rhymes has become quite a skill. It's it's working in a different way, isn't it? In in sort of playground games. Did you have seven girlfriends at one point?
3: Well there was a thing called kiss chase, right? So a boy or a girl has to chase another boy or girl. And if you catch them, you, you, you get a kiss. And I was, like, I was a good runner, but sometimes I'd be a bit lazy. So I'd go up to a girl and I'd say, you know, what's your name? And um, she would say, you know, my name is Lorna. And I would say, if I write a poem about you, can I get a kiss? And then I would write a poem and say, yeah, my name is Efenaia. I mean, love Sister Lorna. I meet her on the corner. Dub it really hard. Oh, Sister Lorna
2: worked every time, huh?
3: Every time. <laughs> it got me in trouble too. Did it? Yeah, because one day I kissed too many girls and they just ganged up on me. The
2: girls ganged up on you? Yeah. How many girls were there?
3: I think it was seven or eight girls and I I said I was their boyfriend separately and they all started talking with each other and, and one day I was playing football and they all confronted me. I was only about six or something.
2: But they were all on the touchline and they'd all, <laughs> yeah. they'd all spoken to each other. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And they all said, you got to pick one. And I was like, but I love you all. <laughs> How old were you? <laughs> no, actually, no, I wasn't five. No, I was about seven, maybe seven or eight then. Oh, oh uh,
2: really? You were that young?
3: Oh <laughs> that old, yeah.
2: <laughs> Can you give me a sense of the 1960s Britain you're growing up in? Culturally, what are you influenced by? What are you watching on TV? What are you listening to?
3: I started to... Watched the news, and it was like black power in America Martin Luther King, you know, Malcolm X, all that kind of stuff. And so, very quickly, before I really understood what she was really about, my hero, or should I say, shero, was Angela Davis. And I think the first time I got suspended from school was because I went to school, and on my trousers' leg, I drew on one of them the afro that was a symbol of Angela Davis. And on the other leg, the black power fist. The sleet. And the teacher, I went to school and the teacher said, Get them off now. And I just pulled my trousers down. I <laughs> said, No, not your trousers. Get those drawings off. And um, I refused to, and I got suspended from school for a for a couple of days. I understood racism because I had my first racist attack when I was about six or seven. Somebody hit me at the back of the head with a brick. With a brick? Yeah. And he was riding on a bicycle as well, so I didn't even throw it, you know. Think of all that, the momentum. The momentum, and, really, and he,
2: he hits you on the yeah. head and you go home bleeding.
3: Yeah, I, I can feel the sky now, it cracks my head open. I was just so confused about, confused not the right word, I was outraged actually that there was kind of killing and murder and racism and all this stuff. And I just, I remember then thinking I've got to do something about it. You know, I've got to do something about it.
2: You've always been driven, haven't you, to act just on your own feelings, not follow the herd. And I was thinking as well about you becoming a vegetarian and then quickly vegan at the age of 11. Yeah. And this is long before. I mean, now it's become fashionable. Yes. But this is just you on your own working out where meat comes from and deciding you want nothing to do with it.
3: The first thing I said to my mother when I learned where meat came, came from was that I don't eat my friends and I'll never eat meat again. And then a couple of years later, I I understood where why females of any species produce milk for their children, not for anybody else's children. And then I decided that I didn't want to have any animal product. And one day a kid said to me, um, you know, you want a bit of my ice cream? And I said, no, nah, I don't have animal products. And another kid with him went, oh, you're a vegan. And I jumped on him and started to fight him. Because I thought he was calling me a name, a really bad name. <laughs> I thought he was calling me something like the N-word or something mm-hmm. like that. And don't call me a vegan. Stop calling me names. I'm fed up with people calling me names. And they had to hold me back. A bit. No, no, vegan is not a bad name. Vegan is a good name. And I'm kind of proud of that in a way because I I wasn't joining a club I wasn't being fashionable I mean I was too young to be fashionable anyway.
2: What's really striking about you and the way you've lived your life is on the one hand you're a real free thinker and you always have been and on the other hand you did get drawn for some years into crime starting at a quite you know a sort of petty level mm. when you were a schoolboy. How do you look back on that time because you did start out kind of pickpocketing yeah. and then it kind of got more serious.
3: The pickpocketing and the really petty crime at the, at the front at the beginning of my career um, was following the crowd, really. As soon as I started to really think for myself, I stopped. But even then, there was something in me that said, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And this will sound really crazy, and I apologise to anybody's house I burgled or if this is your house, but... I remember going into people's houses and in those days there was lots of meters, television meters, gas meters. That's what you went You'd for. put coins in to yes.
2: feed for the supply of electricity yes, or yes. to watch TV.
3: So people were doing that stuff and I'd be looking at what they're reading, you know, in the bookshop. And I'd be remembering the feel of the carpet underfoot and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I'd comment on it and people go, shut up, Benjamin, come on, get the money and run. And then I just stopped. In fact, when I was um, leaving prison once, a prison officer said to me something like, you'll be back in six months. And I said, might be back, but the next time it will be political. I'd raise my political consciousness and I realised that fighting the system is something you can't do if you're in prison. And then there was a period when I went back to crime because it was the 70s. A black teenager trying to get a job with... Um, police record was almost impossible.
2: And we should say that the experience you and your friends had of racism, of being framed for crimes you didn't commit, oh, yes. the constant um, harassment, but also beatings too. Oh. It's, it's really disturbing to read the, what you went through yeah. as a young man.
3: I mean, the thing with me is that I've got in trouble for things that I did do, but sometimes I got locked up and beat up for things that I didn't do. It's hard for people to understand now that I was walking down a road, a marked car just stopped. The cops got out, put me in a shop doorway, beat me up. It's hard for people to understand that I could get arrested on a Friday, kept in a police station, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, beaten every day till about Wednesday. Beaten most of the time with a mattress and bedding around me so I don't bruise that much. Given a couple of days to heal, appeared in court the next Monday. <laughs> the police said they arrested me the night before. So it was really, really difficult. But, you know, going back to me and going back to crime, that second phase of crime I went through was really survival. I kind of jokingly call it my time in management because then I was a big boss and I was managing people. And then one day I just decided, this is it. And when I tell this story in schools, I always say to the kids, you know, I was involved in gangs and we were doing crime and we were getting in trouble and one gang wanted to get me and I wanted to get another gang and then I thought, I've got to get away from this and I went to London. And guess what happened in London, kids? I got in I got in with another gang. And all the kids go, Oh no And I go, Yeah, but it's a gang of poets and singers and musicians and they go wow yeah and and the world changes
2: yeah and well I went wow (laughs) thinking back to this time because this is the um late 70s 78
3: 79
2: describe this London that you come to because it's not a London that anyone who's growing up now would recognize now London is full of you know oligarchs and it's impossible to live but this is a London of squats and cooperatives and what's going on
3: well East London was very derelict when I went there Margaret Thatcher had just been elected, so there was very much a kind of class war going on as well. There were uh, lots of riots. Yeah, the inner-city riots around Liverpool and um, Bristol and Brixton. Sometimes they were called race riots because the majority of people fighting the police were black. But this is because it happened in the kind of areas where lots of black people lived, but they weren't exclusively black rioters. There was a lot of tension in the air, you know. I remember, uh, uh, this is a little bit later... In the mid-80s, I earned a bit of money through doing my poetry and bought myself a white BMW. And I drove this car from Labyrinth Grove in West London to Stratford in East London. And I got stopped four times on one journey. And when I got stopped the last time, I said to the cop, I said, this can't be right now because this is legal money I've earned. I said, I'm legal now. I'm I'm doing the right thing. And um, I've just driven my car for half an hour and i got stopped four times and he was quite honest he said to me he said you're a black man a rastafarian in a bmw we have been told to stop people like you you know and so for it it was almost like it was official you know and i remember i sold the car the next day i I just thought i don't want a bmw um but
2: the nineteen. Uh, Early to mid-1980s, there's also this kind of period of your sort of mainstream breakthrough, appearing on Channel 4 TV, which was this new channel that was particularly interested in finding and reflecting the diversity of modern Britain. They kind of found you, didn't they? Well,
3: I can remember somebody called Simon Heaven approaching me, and he said that there's going to be this new television station. It's called Channel 4 and it's an alternative place. You know you're complaining that you can't get on the BBC. Well, Channel 4 is new, and they want people like you. And I was like, who else? And he'd be like, lesbian, gay people, disabled people. Channel 4 is the place for them to go. And I thought, like, OK. And he made this documentary about me. And there was a time in between making the film and the film being broadcast. And within that time, Trevor Phillips had a program on TV called Black on Black and I appeared on there doing a poem called This Policeman Keeps On Kicking Me To Death. And it just went massive. You'd call it viral now, you know. It was a television programme, but everybody saw it.
2: Can you remember, uh, recite any of it for us.
3: It's a really long poem, and and I really don't like doing bits of my poem, but I'll do a little bit for you. It goes like this, it goes, Inner the distant of the night You see them moving around investigating and crime-making within any town. Creeping persons with no hearts, them control who them please. Them only like, they when you're on your bending knees. Some of us will fight them, we fight them, some of us fight back. Informers will sleep with you, then stab you in your back. This regime is racist, we know this regime is bent. This regime is like a worthless penny that's unspent. Well this policeman keeps on kicking me and pulling out my locks. He keeps on feeding me unlimited book locks. This policeman is a coward he gets me from behind. Him can jail my body but him cannot jail my mind. Like a bat from hell he comes at night to work his evil plan. Although he goes to church on Sunday he's a sinner man. Like a thief in his dark, he takes me to the place where him just left. And when he get me in there him is kicking me to death. Well this policeman, this policeman, well this policeman keeps on kicking me to death. I tell you this policeman, this police man, this police man keeps on kicking me to death. Oh. That's just a piece of it.
2: Oh, thank you. <laughs> I thank you for performing just as I know when you, it's your work, you it's, want to do it properly. When you can
3: see me, we're getting worked off yeah. and it's, it's like you just stop me. It's like stopping me in the middle of I'm making sorry, love. Or but I have to
2: tell you something and I don't often confess to crying to any of my guests, but I was reading your autobiography and I was just reading about the levels of police corruption you recount, the racism, the beatings, being framed for crimes you didn't commit. And my daughter walked in. She said, were you reading? And I said, I'm reading this book about Benjamin Jeff and I. And she said, oh, we did him for GCSE English Literature. We did him for our <laughs> exams. And she was just telling me all about all the ideas that they'd been studying. Mm. You know, across Britain, you're on the curriculum. And I wonder how you feel about the, the fact that your journey has taken you to that place.
3: I grew up complaining that there's no black literature, especially black British literature in schools. I mean, I don't go to schools and say, put my books in schools, But if my poetry or my novels or whatever go to schools, so be it. I hope it just enhances the education.
2: Your place on the school curriculum is something that you're clearly happy with. Mm. But I know that your relationship with sort of the institutions, the British establishment is a bit more ambivalent. Yes. You know, um, And I was thinking actually of your brush with Cambridge University. And that's the first time I really thought about you. Right. I was a teenager at the time. Mm. Trinity College, Cambridge approached you about becoming a fellow. Yes. They wanted to broaden the range of their fellows. Yes. And the Sun newspaper
3: yeah.
2: uh, in particular.
3: They had a headline, would you let this man near your daughter as if I was a rapist or something. Um, Did you Daily think Mail it have, directly
2: up. scuppered your
3: Well, I, I know that in the end, your fellowship. what Cambridge told the public and what was happening inside Cambridge is two different things I've got to say. I more or less basically had the job. But when the press got hold of it, they just thought, we just don't need this controversy. I
2: wish so, to say, this is 1987. Yeah. And obviously, the fact that you, that you were a Rastafarian, that you had dreadlocks, was yeah. itself an issue. Yes. Never mind that you had yeah. a criminal yeah. record. Yeah.
3: In fact, the son it, it said, you know, what are his qualifications? He said, he's black, he's a Rastafarian, he's been in Borstal, young person's prison. What Cambridge were trying to do at the time was reach out because this fellowship was set up to reach people that didn't have the privilege of a university education but could add to the life of the university. And it hadn't been doing that since Henry VIII's time. It's always gone to Professor so-and-so's daughter or a friend of so-and-so and and the story was going to break. So they said, let's find a normal person and they found me. But then all this controversy happened and like I said, they, they, they dropped it. But you also
2: made a film, didn't you, about, sort of inspired by that experience with Cambridge University, which is, I have to say, is the best thing I've ever seen on television in my entire life, even better than Star Trek, which is Dread (laughs) Dread Poet Poet Society, Society, where you're on a train to Cambridge and the spirits of Keith Shelley, Byron and Mary Shelley appear in an electrical storm. Tell me about that, because it's so beautiful.
3: Well, what happened was the Daily Mail had a cartoon of me reading poems to students. And I've got marijuana coming out of my ears, out of my mouth. There's marijuana spliffs on the floor. And there's a professor whispering to the audience, if you hear any rumblings, it's Shelley, Keats and Byron turning in their graves. And I just thought, you know, first of all, I didn't smoke then. I don't smoke now. Shelley, Byron and Keats. I thought... What were they like? You
2: know, the anarchists. If you
3: put me with them, I'm like an angel. I'm <laughs> yeah. really tame. I'm really well yeah. behaved. I mean, Byron was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Yes. Shelley was experimenting with sex and drugs and yes. everything else. Anarchy. Yeah, and and so I just thought, hey, let's 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 meet. You know, and that's when I devised the play.
2: It's oh, wonderful. You've also. Influenced others, and I was thinking about, and again, it's this is this is something I witnessed. I used to work at Channel Four News, and you were invited on to talk about why you had never accepted um, an honour, which is the system where the Queen bestows these awards from knighthoods down to sort of MBEs, Um, and often they're seen as recognition for artistic achievement, and often people from Commonwealth backgrounds value them because they feel it's a symbol of acceptance, and you didn't just come on. Via video link to argue why you hadn't accepted one. You talked Yasmin Alibi Brown, a British Asian journalist who'd come on to disagree with you, (laughs) into handing back, making the decision to hand back her honour in that interview. And I watched it happen and I thought, how? Your powers of persuasion, Benjamin.
3: Well, the thing was, I wasn't trying to persuade her. I think it's a great bit of television. And, you know, credit to Yasmin, she's being really, uh, really honest. Yasmin said she wanted to inspire lots of young Asian girls to become journalists. Now I know, I knew, I'm living in East London, in East Ham. I knew that lots of Asian girls looked up to Yasmin anyway. And it didn't matter about the award. She didn't
2: need an MBA. She didn't
3: need it, you know. And if anything, that discredited her in some circles. And I said that and I was talking and talking. And she just interrupted me and she went, Benjamin, okay, stop. I've changed my mind. Know. You know, and... Funny enough, I met John Snow the other day. We were both in the, the of Channel yeah, yeah, we were in the National Portrait Gallery talking about it, and he, and he said it's a great bit of television. It was just like because usually somebody changed their mind, as you know, they won't admit on the screen. Yeah. They'll talk about it afterwards, maybe. Yeah, you're probably right, but on screen, for her to go, that's it, Benjamin, you've done it. And the next day, she wrote a great article. I don't know if you read it, yeah. where she talks about how do you give one back? Do you go back to Buckingham Palace and throw it over the fence and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> But, you know, I wasn't trying to persuade them. Listen, every time the Honest Sisters comes up, I get phone calls from people who have been offered one. Benjamin, what do you think? And I always say to them, it's your own conscience, you know. If you want the name Empire attached to your name, that's really up to you. I never try and say you should or you shouldn't. I say it's up to you. I explain why I didn't. And I explain that it's not going to get any more doors open for you. If anything, it can make you more quiet well Be-
2: tony blair offered one to you i mean that's how you came to yes just yeah. turn it down
3: what you don't probably know is that the first one that was offered to me it was, it's been offered twice once it wasn't so public and i turned both of them down the first one was from tony blair and i said no and the second one was from somebody in the community that said okay we're not going to have this from government this is from us benjamin for the work you've done in the community and i've said no thank you you know I love coming and talking to your elderly people etc etc but that's it I think that we can find a way of honoring our great artists and poets and athletes and whatever but we've got to divorce it from government and monarchy yeah we've got to find another way of doing it
2: It's often ideas that have kind of been gestating in you for years, haven't they? Like uh, white comedy.
3: Yes. Well, you see, sometimes I think it can take you half an hour to write a poem, but you've been thinking about it for ten years. White comedy came about. Um, well, the the idea, the seed was planted when I was watching Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Now, even if you didn't like boxing, you had to love Muhammad Ali for his, you know, his ideas. His his ideas on human rights and civil rights and and his poetry. And I remember one time he just had a fight and he won the guy and he came out of the boxing ring and the person was interviewing him and he wanted to talk about boxing. And Muhammad Ali wanted to talk about the English language and he said, why is all the good things white and all the bad things black? And he said, even Tarzan in the jungle is a white dude, you know. And <laughs> we black folks sit down and watch the black, the white dude being the hero in the African jungle, and I thought it's so right.
2: Let's hear it then.
3: So, this poem is called White Comedy. I was white mailed by a white witch with white magic and white lies, branded a white sheep. I slept as a white smith near a white spot where I suffered white water fever. White listed as a white leg, I was in the white book as a master of the white arts. It was like white death. People call me white Jack. Others call me white Wog. So I joined the white watch, trained as a white guard, lived off the white economy. I was caught and beaten by the white shirts and condemned to a white mass. Don't worry, I will be writing to the black house.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. You wrote to Bob Marley when you were very young. Yes. And he wrote back. Yeah. Which just has been amazing. And there's a line in that letter, which I think has been a kind of mission statement for you. Do you remember what he said? Shall I remind you? Go and remind me. Britain needs you, so forward on. How have you interpreted that over the years?
3: Well, at the time, I probably wasn't that sure if Britain needed me.
2: Because you would have been, what, were you still a teenager then? I was
3: a teenager. And to hear that coming from him, I remembered showing it to somebody. And, and they agreed. They said, yeah, Britain needs you. He said, who do you know that's speaking about human rights and for black people in Britain right now? And I said, nobody. And so they said, there you are, Benjamin, go and do it. And so it just kind of inspired me, it fired me up. And the, the fascinating thing is that I don't think I write about this in the autobiography either, but when I meet Bob Marley he remembers me because I sent him a bunch of poems as well and he could quote my poems back to me. And I was like, wow. You know, so it wasn't just kind of sitting down and writing a quick note. He actually read my work. And when he said Britain needs me, he actually meant it, you know.
2: That is amazing. Yeah,
3: it, it's... The other person I met like that was Nelson Mandela. I know they're two big names and all that stuff. but And we
2: should say you had spent many years campaigning prominently against apartheid. And in the 1970s and 80s in Britain, much of the political establishment did not did have a not, problem with South right. Africa.
3: Yeah, yeah. Again, Mandela so became so popular. It's hard for people to remember that. you know.
2: Yes, everyone was on the side of Mandela after he was freed, weren't they? Yes, yeah.
3: The great thing about him as well was that every conversation you had with him, he remembered. I remember having a conversation with him about shirts. <laughs> Sounds really boring. But he was going through his phase where he's wearing really coloured shirts. And he was explaining to me that when he was in Robben Island, it was so... It's not even grey. I don't know if he have been there, but it's very brown dust everywhere and he'd never really well for a long time he didn't see any color and he didn't see any children growing up so he went through this time when he he always had colorful shirts on and his grandchildren in tow and he said to me benjamin you got to wear much more colorful shirts man tell people that you're here when you walk into a room you know and we got interrupted his car arrived madiba your car is here. and he got in the car and drove off about six years later um at the um unrobing uh, unrobing is that right word of his statue yeah um yeah
2: the unveiling of his unveiling
3: of his statue in um in front of the houses of parliament i was the kind of mc there and he came to me and he just continued the conversation (laughs) benjamin your shirt man come on (laughs) what are you doing and i was like wow you remembered the conversation
2: you are on the curriculum now your poems are among the nation's favorites. What effect do you think you have on young minds trying to find their own voice? And you know what what advice would you give them?
3: Well I'd like to know that I'm corrupting young minds. I'd like <laughs> no, I mean I'd like to know that I'm trying to get people to think out of the box. We're in a world now where advertising is so powerful. And so I just want people to think for themselves. It sounds really simple. But so many people find it difficult to think for themselves. Here's my test. I'll say to somebody, what do you think about you know, pollution? And if they turn around to me and say, well, as an Indian or as a China person, or and I go, no, 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 you, what do you think? Stop telling me what your government thinks or what your culture thinks or whatever. Mm-hmm. What do you think? It's so hard to get people to really think for themselves.
2: And in terms of kind of creative thinking and, you know, creating your own work as an artist. I was thinking, you know, you, you grew up with dyslexia at a time when it wasn't recognised as a condition. What would, advice would you give to maybe children with dyslexia now?
3: Well, first of all, I always say that dyslexia is not a mark of your intelligence. Some of the most intelligent people in the world are being dyslexic. You know, Einstein, some of the great architects of the day, they say something like 70% of British architects or dyslexic, and I've met a couple of them, so don't let that hold you back. It can't, it doesn't stop you from having ideas.
2: One thing I'm conscious of when we're talking today is we're living in a world where it feels like racism is on the rise again. As someone who was at the heart of you know the anti Nazi League battle against racism in the 70s and early 80s, is it different today?
3: Yes, it's different. I hesitate to say this, but I hope you and the listeners can understand when I say the race is a lot more sophisticated, in other words when I was a kid they just walk on the street and go we hate you blacks get out of our country you don't belong here so now you have people you have people that are called racist intellectuals you know populists <laughs> yes yeah your populist populist when you look at some of our leaders people in power who have such racist ideas and sexist ideas and they're in power and so the racist and sexist people feel emboldened you know they feel like this is their time it's just unbelievable so we've got to fight them at a, at, a, at another level. This battle is going to be a lot more difficult than the other one in the past. The past it was a lot more physical and now we've got laws passed. But you know, and I'm sure you know, <laughs> passing laws and making laws is one thing, but to change people's mindsets is another thing. And that can take generations, unfortunately. The interesting thing about racism, wherever it comes from, is that it's, It can spread really easily. You can go to somebody that doesn't understand anything about politics, and just say to them, "You're homeless," and they go, "Yeah, I'm homeless. Why am I homeless?" And point to a black person, go, "Because that black person got your home," and they go, "Yeah, I understand that. I hate black people now. I want my, you know, they're taking our homes and they're taking our jobs." What I did in the East End of London in the 70s, when a when a racist said this to me, I said, "Okay, I'll take you and show you how black people live." And I literally took two racist people around some Bengali houses in Tower Hamlets to show them how they lived. (laughs) And they went, we don't want to live like this. This is terrible. And I said, that's why me and you should be uniting and fighting for better housing for all of us. And so in a way, that idea of telling people, this is divide and rule, let's unite. I used to have a poem that used to go, if you get uptight and you want to fight, fight them, not me. If you check out the scene and things don't right, see them, not me. I came, I saw, I live here and I have my tribulation to be here. If you're getting uptight and you really want to fight, fight them, not me. If you live in a kitchen and you can't afford chicken, blame them, not me. If the taxi pay is high and you live up in the sky, see them, not me. I come from afar, but me live here, and all I want is an equal share. If you're getting uptight and you really want fight, fight them, not me. In other words, I'm saying, look, we should be uniting and fighting the people who are oppressing both of us. It's very hard to say that to the new breed of of, of racists now. They'll start sentences by saying, I'm not a racist, but... So if you call them a racist, they'll say, I just told you I'm not a racist, but, you know. And so we have to really be on our guard. And like I said, I think it's going to take a long time to overcome this. But we have to fight the battle. We have to for future generations. We've got to see this one out.
2: Britain needs you. So forward on. (laughs) (laughs) Benjamin Zephanai, thank you so much. How I Found My Voice is a podcast from Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassett. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please support us by taking a moment to rate and review How I Found My Voice on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and helps others to find the show.
1: What are you doing right now?